Young African Entrepreneur, Episode 12. Welcome to Young African Entrepreneur, the leading resource for starting and growing a business for flourishing entrepreneurs in sub-Saharan Africa. Join in as we discuss tactical advice, personal motivators, and unexpected surprises for industry leaders and market professionals as they chart their own path to success. It's your time, your journey, your Africa. So please welcome your host, Victoria Crandall. Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of Young African Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Victoria Crandall. Today's guest is Wiza Jalakazi, serial entrepreneur and current head of international expansion at Africa is Talking. You can connect with Wiza at WizaJ on Twitter and via his website, Wiza.jalaka.si. By 16, Wiza had already founded his first company, MW Tunes, an online music distribution platform that was way ahead of his time in his home country of Malawi. And at university in Nairobi, he and his co-founders set up Juaji Research, a market research company that paid survey participants via mobile money. It held a lot of promise. It was innovative, cost-effective, and accurate. Early on, Juaji raised seed capital from Savannah Fund and participated in its elite accelerator program. It all seemed to be going well, until it wasn't. Wiza and his co-founder were running out of cash, and they weren't close to figuring out how to make the business viable. He made a tough choice. He resigned and returned to Malawi. Shortly thereafter, he spoke with Sam Jakandi, founder of Africa's Talking, an API developer, who offered him a job to set up the Malawi office. Wiza had some reservations about working for someone else, but he quickly overcame those doubts and has never looked back. Africa's Talking recently raised $8.6 million for its expansion into new markets, including Cote d'Ivoire, which Wiza will be spearheading. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Wiza. He's extremely eloquent and a fount of knowledge about the emotional roller coaster of being a young African tech entrepreneur. And don't forget to check out the show notes at yaepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Wiza Jalakazi. Wiza, welcome to Young African Entrepreneur. So happy to have you here. Thank you. So Wiza, something that you retweeted recently from a Nigerian entrepreneur caught my eye. The tweet was, I will put my money behind any event to discuss the real struggle entrepreneurs face, where we will all tell each other the truth. None of this, I am crushing it, we are growing 59% month-on-month nonsense. Any takers? And I want to know, why did this tweet resonate with you? Okay. I think it it was just a very refreshing perspective on a matter that a lot of founders and entrepreneurs aren't as willing to talk openly about. And there is a mental load that comes with being an entrepreneur. And I think that is made worse when you're in um, the tech startup space because there's a lot of external noise and media hype around what the ideal picture of success is supposed to be. And um, the media tends to focus on outliers uh, as opposed to um, people who go through the process ordinarily. And that creates a lot of pressure for the ordinary person. And it's just, it was just so true that um, 
I think like there's just so much hype around technology entrepreneurship. Everyone wants to be seen as a winner when in reality, it's never that pretty and it takes a long time for results to come out. So people struggle because they don't have safe spaces where they can talk about the struggles behind this perceived success. You will see startups growing, not as, not as dramatically as, you know, 50% month over month in the beginning, but you will see incremental progress, but it's not exciting to talk about. And we need to create a space where people can just talk about the ordinary stuff. And, and when you said the media tends to focus on outliers in the Africa tech space, who would be those yeah. outliers, for instance? I'm hesitant to name names because then it's such a sensitive topic. But like, it's always clear in an ecosystem where the real players are. Like, for example, a good metric is have you raised funding before in Africa? If you have, like, you're relatively successful. But there's so many other smaller startups that maybe haven't raised funding or haven't been covered by the mainstream media, but are genuinely doing well. I think there's a disconnect between the reality that's being painted, especially online, and the reality on the ground. It's not as marvelous or as Facebooky a story as it's painted to be. It's actually just like months of having your head down and getting things done. And that's the majority of startup entrepreneurs in Africa, the ones that you don't read about in major publications. No, and it seems like um, entrepreneurship and particularly tech entrepreneurship startups, you know, it's really kind of this in vogue kind of sexy topic. And it's yes, yeah. like where it's a rock star. Thing yeah, right exactly. Like start tech founders are the new rock stars. Right. And it's almost to this point of where it's being fetishized of like, okay, yes. let's not talk about like all of the real, like, let's overlook a lot of the massive problems that Africa still faces, which is, you know, it's yeah. um, things like infrastructure development, et cetera, because let's just talk about the new sexy ed tech startup, for instance. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and yeah. it's like, those are, they're still, they're two narratives that, you know, run in parallel, but it's almost, yeah, you know, it's like one, like everyone wants to talk about tech and it kind of eclipses these other things. Yeah, yeah that's, that's definitely true. Yeah, it's, 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 I guess it's just a phase that's, that we're going through as an industry. You know, it's like Africa right now is the new, there's a lot of hope. You know, there's a lot of hope around the continent. There's a lot of optimism. There are plenty of great stories, but the way the media, the media needs to come up with a more balanced method of coverage that highlights the ordinary successes. But because of this hype around it, it only makes sense if you can talk about the rock stars that are crushing right. it. There's a mental health angle around it as well, because I think there's like stigma around how people view failure and people don't feel like they're allowed to fail. So then this just compounds the problem. Like you have this high pressure environment where you're either a rock star or non-existent and then you're not allowed to fail. But then the startup process requires you to fail and iterate to improve. So it's just the mastery. <laughs> right. No, there was a great Quartz article about that, but focusing on the Nigerian ecosystem and how Nigerian yeah. entrepreneurs really, yeah, really struggle to talk about failure. And even if you have to yeah. close your startup, no one talks about it. Yeah. And I think this is the symptom of a much deeper problem in terms of just African culture, because in many African cultures, failure is stigmatized uh, and you learn this from a very young age. So you're not allowed to like fail in school and other things. And it just creates this very unhealthy attitude towards failure, which is terrible for a startup entrepreneur because failure is simply part of the process. It took me six years to really understand that 
I can just imagine what other people are going through. Yeah, and um, we're definitely, throughout this hour, we're going to tease through kind of that story and your relationship, like how you've kind of dealt with failure. But, you know, I wanted to open with that tweet because I thought it served as a nice transition to talk about your Medium article, which I loved. I remember, you know, just clicking through Medium and I stumbled upon this intriguing headline, uh, what it's really like to be young, black, and an African tech startup entrepreneur in Africa. And it was this article that you had written about the complexities of being an African entrepreneur and your own experiences with failure. And it was the rawness and honesty of it that really struck me. And I'd love for you to recount to us the internal dialogue that you had with yourself about deciding to write this article because you really made yourself vulnerable. And I imagine that you had a lot of mixed feelings about actually publishing the piece. Yeah, well, it was a very interesting time in my life. I think I was going through a lot of changes as a person. It was just things were not going right at the startup towards research. And like, I didn't foresee that scenario because we had a lot of hype around us. We really did have a lot of hype. And to the point that you start to feel infallible. And for me, it was just like, okay, how did we get from where we were before to where we are now with no clear, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> so yeah, I was, I was just thinking to myself, okay, I've been running this company for a while. My team and I have tried everything that we can to make this thing work, but it's not working the way we want to. What can we salvage from the experience? And what, for me, it was really about saying the things that I wish were said to me before I decided to start that startup. If, if somebody had told me the things that I explained in that article, I felt I would have had a much clearer picture of what I was getting into and where the pitfalls are. Because a lot of it is like really just psychological and mental and just like staying focused on what you set out to do in a world of seemingly infinite possibilities and every idea seems like a good one. You typically find yourself running around in circles a lot if you don't have a very clear picture of where you're going. So I just wanted to share that experience with other people so that if at the time that I was writing it, I thought that it was relatively unique to me, but the response was very overwhelming because I was writing for a blog that of my Facebook audience and a few of my family and close friends, people who know me and people who know how, how much I've invested in trying to um, establish my career. So I was really overwhelmed by the response and it was nice to know that there are other people who share these struggles because where we have like shared problems, it's easy to come up with shared solutions and to create environments that allow people to thrive even in those conditions. So I just wanted, it was more of like an experiment really to say like, okay, what's going to happen if I just talk about the stuff that nobody wants to talk about? And I needed like an outlet because it's so mentally taxing to try to build a technology company. And I really needed an outlet. So for me, it was like, I want to put this thing to bed and let out all my feelings about it. So that seemed like a productive way to do yeah, so. Like, yeah. But for sure, I didn't foresee <laughs> the response. I really didn't expect it to go the way it yeah, did. Yeah, no, it seemed very cathartic just to let everything out on the page. Yeah. Well, and kind of what you alluded to earlier, what is it that you wish you had known? Just not to believe the hype. Like there's, there's hype and there's actual work that has to be done. So it's very easy to build a company around hype. There are terms that people in the industry use like vanity metrics that can, if you're not careful, you can conflate them to actual measures of progress. So 
So you think you're making progress, but you're so if not. if I can jump in here, give yeah. us an example of a vanity metric. So if you have a product that you're, you have maybe social media pages for and you've got like 100,000 likes, that's great. Mm. But that doesn't translate to people actually using your product for revenue. <laughs> so, you know, it's easy for you to build a startup around arbitrary metrics that you define as having value simply because there's so much hype in the industry and no one has really standardized how startups are valued. And then people reinforce that because of this hype cycle around people reinforce that. So you go and say, okay, this is growing. And like, yeah, double down on that. Make sure you grow that. Metric. But then at the end of the day, when it's you and your bottom line and your investors and people that you have to pay at the end of the month, those things don't really matter. It's about like how much traction are you really building that's translating into revenue? Mm. And startup people like to avoid talking about revenue because like, okay, we can figure out how to monetize later, but is a business at the end of the day. And it just doesn't make sense to try to build a business and you're not thinking about things like revenue. It's very easy to fall into that trap mm. with tech startup entrepreneurship in Africa right now. Okay. That, I mean, that, that does surprise me, I must say, because I mean, entrepreneurs are business minded people and you have to have an idea of your books and really how much, how much runway you have, how much cash you have to burn because otherwise you just, you have to shut your doors yeah, but I feel like to some extent also the ecosystem we've created encourages people to build things, to build products, not to build companies. So there's very little emphasis on the business and administrative skill sets required to actually get something from nothing to, to something. And people just focus on how great is the tech? Is there a blockchain? I mean, so many buzzwords you can throw in. I could like come up with a deck for a startup tomorrow and probably get funded. <laughs> right. You just need to add how, Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, I don't know. It's crazy. So that's really dangerous because it hurts us in the long term and it just increases the duration of time that entrepreneurs have to spend failing <laughs> to, to learn. I think like tech entrepreneurship, you can only actually learn by figuring out the things that don't work. It's very different. It's very different from any other type of entrepreneurship that I've seen because you have this mental model that has been painted for you. That is not the real thing. But for you to get to the point where you acknowledge that, you just have to fail. And you talk to other founders who failed before and they tell you the same thing, like, oh, you had to go through this to realize that like all this stuff is hype <laughs> and there is a lot of work involved. So that's where the crux of the matter is. Wow. Okay. So half of the battle is really ignoring the hype and doubling down, yeah, focusing, like, really yeah. figuring out, okay, what's going to drive the business forward and doubling down on it. But in the meantime, yeah. you just have to block out all of this white noise. Yeah. Like it's, it's a fight between you and your ego and half the people telling you that you're, whatever you're working on is the next big thing people emailing you for interviews and all these things. And I see a lot of founders making time for those things. I used to make a lot of time for those things, thinking that they were beneficial to the growth of my business. But those people have their own incentives around why they do those things. And those incentives aren't aligned with yours when you're first starting up your business. When you're much older, like now I'm comfortable talking about this because of where Africa's talking is as a startup. I think we have some degree of authority to comment on the matter because we've grown and we can, we can tell you about experiences. But then now people are spending time branding and creating hype around experiences that haven't been actualized yet. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that's so insightful because you're right. I mean, as someone who has worked previously as a journalist, you're just looking for the next big thing. So you can really yep. kind of read into things because it's in your interest to 
kind of brand a new startup as like, oh, wow, this is going to be the next big thing, the next African unicorn. Yeah. And like 90% of what you read about, hear about is that really. The startup ecosystem in Africa, in my opinion, is still very nascent in nature. There's a lot of work that has to be done across verticals, across industries. And like, you know, just like jumping at every opportunity isn't really an effective approach. We need to be strategic and systematic about how we evaluate opportunities. And we shouldn't listen to people who don't have skin in the game when it comes to our ecosystem. Right. And what type of work needs to be done? Very basic infrastructure work, I would say. So I think ecosystems can only innovate as far as their their infrastructure allows. So we need to like double down on very basic problems, like making sure that we have access to the right technical talent. One of the biggest problems that I'm foreseeing across the continent is that you're going to have great startups, great ideas that are failing to scale because of the lack of depth technically. There's a lot of like technical debt, I'm using that word very loosely, loosely across the continent. We just need to improve engineering quality. That's a great place to start. And then building support structures for patient capital. So I'm at a point where I think you don't really need venture funding to do most startups, but there are some that definitely do require it. And at some point, if you want to grow as quickly as needed in order to capture an opportunity, there is going to be need for some degree of capital that's there. Right now, I don't think there's a lot of patient capital available. I think for African founders, I feel like you know in the Valley, it's not that hard to talk to a few people and find like $50,000, $100,000 to try something that you're not really sure is going to work out. People only want to like take sure bets on African companies. And that's great for the companies, but it's bad for the ecosystem because someone has to pay that school fees, I would call it school fees, for <laughs> entrepreneurs to learn. Right, yeah. And you can only do that by, by losing money. Right. No, those are excellent points. And I want to backtrack a bit and kind of get some chronology to your story. Your first startup, which you founded in 2009 when you were 16, was a music streaming yeah. site in Malawi, yeah. MW Tunes, yeah. and which ultimately failed. And why did yeah. that work out? Okay, so we were like, I think we were just super early. We had a product that the value proposition was to advertisers to put up, you know, little ads on on the website, and then people will be able to view them on mobile. And we were saying to these companies that we are the only company in Malawi who can give you the mobile young audience who are consuming data. And it just didn't make sense to the telcos at the time because in Malawi at the time, GPRS as a standard for mobile internet was just coming up. So this is like 2G internet. That's not very fast. It's not very popular. It was just way ahead of its time, I think. But now there's so many other sites in Malawi that are doing the same thing and making quite a bit of money from it. Yeah, okay. So you were just, yeah, being a first mover and ultimately (laughs) things had to catch up to you. Yeah. When I started, I wasn't doing it for the sake of establishing a business. We just had this problem where I was hanging out with a a few of my friends who were making a lot of music at the time, and then they needed a way to distribute their music. So before it became MW Tunes, it was like a website that I had built for a friend to just distribute his music. And then like people kept asking like, okay, how can you get that done? How can you get that done? And people kept asking me more and more for the same thing. So I sat down with uh, my co-founder from MW Tunes Osakala, and then he said, like, okay, why don't we try to hack together a platform that would let people do this? And then we did some pretty interesting things. Like we optimized the way audio was served. So we would like 
we sort of like hacked together two different compression algorithms for MP3s such that you get very small files, 92 kilobit bit rates, but you have this very high quality sound oh, for mobile. That's so important. Yeah, it was it was quite interesting because people would complain about the data prices and the time it would take to download a song. So that's what really drove the popularity because artists found it as an easy way to distribute and there was no other digital distribution platform. So it, it grew really quickly. At our peak, we had like 15,000 unique visitors a month in a country with very low mobile internet penetration and like 95% were actual Malawians. So it was really exciting. But yeah, just wrong time. And what did you learn from that first failure? Oh, quite a bit. I think for me, it was like, it was a great show of technical ability because this was before um, mobile web was really a thing. So we had to hack together a mobile looking website. And like we had to combine different open source tools just to build something. It was hacky, but it was functional. So that really taught me that you don't really need to have a lot of technical skill for you to prototype something. And this is a skill I found myself, I found myself using very much at Joaji. Because I don't identify as a software developer. I do have the skill set. I do write code, but like I'm not at that level. So just being able to prototype things very quickly has been a very useful skill mm, for business development. Yeah. Because yeah. it's, yeah, it allows you to get to market quickly and then you get to test your idea and refine. Yeah. And so in 2014, you co-founded, as we've already mentioned, we've already touched upon the market research company, Juaji Research, with yeah. your classmate from the United States International University in Nairobi, Hungai. And tell us about yeah. that conversation when you two decided to set up the company. Okay, so like I was interning at the university's in entrepreneurship incubation program called NEVA, New Economy Venture Accelerator. And like Hungai was an entrepreneur in residence. So he had done like a few other startups before that, and I had done a few other startups, and we would just like chat and exchange ideas a lot. So the entire concept for Juaji is his idea, and he brought it to me and said, like, hey, what do you think of this? And I was like, dude, this thing is amazing. You just need someone to sell it, and I can sell it. So we had a few conversations, you know, over a few weeks, and then we eventually came to the decision to co-found something and just get started to see where it can go. And then he was focusing on building the technology, and I was focusing on, you know, trying to turn it into a business and, like, selling the thing. So, yeah, that was pretty much how we started. When we started it, we didn't really expect it to take off the way it did. Initially, we were planned to be a bit patient about how we were going to execute the business. But then I think just this... There was a lot that was happening. And I think I'm taking it back to the hype. I think it was just like, okay, it's a great time to do market research. I mean, like you feel these external pressures to say like, okay, let's move to market. Okay, we need capital to test the ideas. Where do we get the capital? Um, we applied into Savannah Funds Accelerator. We got in, much to our delight and surprise, because um, it's not that easy to get in. I think they have an ex acceptance rate of about 2%. Yeah, if I can jump in. Uh, at, at the at, time. At what point in the business did you fundraise from Savannah? So it was still really early stage. We had some proof of concepts and we had done some very basic experimentation with closed user groups. You know, people around the university just trying to understand the psychology of how people would react to, I guess you should give background on the startup. We're trying to build a solution to allow small businesses to obtain data on demand about specific vertical markets by surveying people and rewarding them with mobile money. Okay. So for instance, yeah. if you were... I don't know, like an SME that was selling, I don't know, shirts or <laughs> some type yeah. of uh, retail item and you wanted to get some information on consumer demand. 
Yes. So that way you could pay Juaji to do like a survey and you would go out and run the survey and then people who participated, you know, would be rewarded by through M-Pesa. M-Pesa, yeah. Okay. That's exactly how it worked. So, yeah, I think we raised relatively early because we wanted to pilot uh, at scale. We needed to have like a lot of money that we would use for incentives so that we could like pilot to see how, how does this thing work when you're serving like a thousand people versus like 10 people that you already know. So that was what was driving the decision to fundraise as well as access to networks because we quickly realized that for the skill of what we're trying to build, we need to be in touch with decision makers at big organizations. So the primary factor that drove us to, to look into an accelerator program was to see what we could do in terms of business reach because we tried talking to who we believed to, would be our potential customers at the time, like small SMEs and really small businesses, and they just didn't see the value in market research at the time. One of the great outcomes of the Savannah Fund Accelerator for us was uh, some introductions to some people at Nielsen, the market research firm, and they had an incredible use case for our product. And like, it was unfortunate that we discovered that late into the company cycle. But yeah, that was where the real opportunity was, like building these solutions sort of for uh, these large scale enterprise companies. Because they do the same things manually with people who just go out and ask questions. And the process is very expensive, cumbersome, and error prone. So our approach made a lot of sense for them, but we were too late to discover that. Right. And um, I'm just, for example, I have a friend who works in public health in Abidjan, and that's exactly what she's doing. You know, it's like she's managing a group of team, a team that goes out in the field and, you know, ask questions about reproductive health. So that would be another, yeah. you know, another instance where they could really use a technology like this. Yeah. And I see this more and more often now, especially like in Africa, talking where people want to use that, do this type of surveys over SMS and USSD, and it's becoming a thing. So I expect the, the technology is going to continue being adopted. Again, it seems like there's this recurring theme that you're just always ahead of the curve. <laughs> I apparently. <laughs> so now I'm trying to slow it down so that I get it right this time. Right, right. <laughs> and I'm interested to know about Savannah's accelerator program. Really, what was it like? I mean, what did you learn? What were the major takeaways? So I'm a very big fan of the Savannah Fund Accelerator because I think it made me the technology entrepreneur that I am today. There was just a lot of exposure. So the Savannah Fund in Africa is managed by a guy called Mwana Ali. He's a Stanford business alumni. And I think he's one of the first people who really thought about what it would take to make African startups investable. So one of the emails that I have from Buana, after we got accepted into the accelerator program and thinking it was so difficult, it was like, this is probably the easiest funding you'll ever get in Africa. And at the time, I read it and I was like, huh, wow, can this possibly be true? And it is true. Like, it, man, it's, it was such an experience. It was like really taking you out of this shell where you're seeing the world as informed by these external opinions around the media, you know, tech crunch, all these things. Those things are not bad things, but then they're not painting the picture that you are going to experience. So you think you're in for a relatively easy ride. I remember conversations with like some friends and, and Hungai at the time were like, okay, we're going to work on this thing for five years and then it's pina coladas. And stuff. Like, you know, right? <laughs> it's definitely pina coladas. It doesn't work that way. So... Savannah Fund taught us that. What I had us pitching to high-profile people from multinationals across the world, Google, Airtel, being in that space where you have to defend your idea to someone who manages products at Facebook, for example, 
it really just forces you to think about the business at a very fundamental level. Like, okay, what the heck am I actually trying to do? And that's the biggest thing that Savannah Fund did for us. They also did a UX workshop, which I didn't see the value of at the time. But now my opinion is that people should spend time understanding who they're building for and then take effort to design experiences, delightful experiences for whoever it is they're trying to serve. I never understood why he wanted us to like sit in two weeks just thinking about UX, but I see the value now because there are so many products being built in isolation without being informed by interactions with the actual people who are going to be using those right. products. And again, it goes back to this ego thing where like in your head, because you're the one building, it must be the best damn thing ever. <laughs> but yeah, it just doesn't work out. And then finally, there was a demo day where we got to pitch to some of the biggest investors in the world. It was coincidental that we had our demo day around the time that Obama was in Nairobi for the Global Entrepreneurship Summit. So there were so many entrepreneurs and investors around the city at the time. And then Buana set up this really great demo day where we got to meet um, some of the most influential names in technology and pitch in front of them. And they just ask you questions at a different level that force you to just sit down and think about the way you build businesses. And that's something that you can put a value to. Oh, I imagine getting to learn from the best people in the business. So after the accelerator ends, is the idea that you're supposed to have a product that you can test like a prototype? Yeah, you need to have something that people can interact with and ideally buy. So sometimes it's a product, sometimes it's a service, but something. It really depends on what exactly it is you're trying to build. And a prototype in that sense looks different for everybody. So I wish there were more words to describe it. Okay. Yeah, that's a good point. And then it seems at this time, like in parallel, you were talking with an international research firm. I'm assuming that was, was that Nielsen? Okay, yeah. to, to work on a research project that you, as you mentioned, it kind of unfortunately came later in the kind of the cycle of the business. But, um, yeah. you know, I mean, that sounded like it could have been a real game changer, that it was high stakes. What exactly happened? Yeah, so met some people at Nielsen and then we were like, trying to discover their internal processes for uh, how they do the research. We discovered that they do more or less what we do, and we had a much more refined experience for doing it that was a lot less error-prone. So the main pain point that they had was the high cost, turnover time, and it being error-prone. So they had a whole segment of customers that they simply couldn't serve because they would never be able to deliver on time. So the research that we had proposed to them was for a brand that was manufacturing crisps, and they wanted to see their the performance of their brand of crisps, perception-wise, versus other brands in supermarkets. So, you know, we had this very rich data about our users that would allow us to target surveys much more specifically than they could on their own, because they would walk up to random people, but like we could tell that, hey, Victoria's in Abidjan, she's... She's this age, she lives here. These are her preferences. These are things she doesn't like. So we had a much more refined sample set that would give them richer results from a smaller sample size. So instead of them surveying 10,000 people, they could survey 1,000 who had specific characteristics, and that would give them much more meaningful information than they would the other way. So we had to digitize their forms, factoring, into account the things that we already know about our respondents. So a form that we got from them with like 120 questions, 
soon became like 50 or 40 questions because we already knew the answers to everything else or we could safely extrapolate some meaningful answers for them. But yeah, that was the opportunity. We had a big of a bit of a back and forth, but we just couldn't build the technology in time. And they were trying to do this project for an active customer who had expectations. So in the interest of managing their expectations, we decided it was better to terminate it at the end. But for sure, if we had more runway, I'm pretty sure we would have built something. They even had an incubator in Israel for market research startups. And this goes to show how invested they were as a corporate in the space. I usually criticize a lot of corporates for saying they're doing an investment fund or they want to help the startup ecosystem, but then there are no tangible things that you can point out to validate it. So I feel like, yeah, it was just unfortunate that we didn't have the time. But yeah, they run a thing called the Nielsen Innovation Fund. And yeah, they fund really good uh, market research startups and they have a unit in Israel, Mm. like a whole building. Yeah. Well, and then what... After, you know, you had to kind of let that go with Nielsen, what happened next in the company? So, yeah, we had some tough conversations and we wanted to figure out what to build next. So I was working on this prototype customer satisfaction tool for measuring how people's experience was at a restaurant or at a bar. Like I was only designing for specifically restaurants and and bars. So we had a great pitch to Java House. It's a very popular chain of cafes here in Kenya. And they have like over 10, 20 branches across the country. And we wanted to refine their customer feedback experience because at the end of your experience with them, they would send you an SMS if you've paid with them. And then they would ask you to do a rate it on how likely would you recommend on a scale of one to 10. That's that promoter score. And we thought there were a lot more things that people want to say. Like maybe they want to talk about the service, the food. So we built a really good form for them. We took it to them. They loved it but we couldn't commercialize a price point that really made sense. So at that point, I had a conversation with Hongai and Nigel, um, the team at George at the time, and we needed to like clearly define what we wanted to build. So they wanted to build something different from what I was describing. And I was like, okay, I'm okay with that. But then like now we're out of money. What does this mean? That's when we had this really tough conversation. I was like, I think it's best if I should head back home to Malawi because I'm Malawian, living in Kenya. Um, life is just expensive for me. So I'd made the decision to say, like, okay, I think it's best for the company. At this point, if we can't agree to build one thing, it's home time. It's probably going to go back home and figure out what next problem to solve. And fortuitously, you know, I was having conversations with Sam, and that's how I ended up in Africa talking. But yeah, it's all part of the right, game. Right, but I mean, recount to us the inner dialogue that you had with yourself about resigning, because that's quite... You can imagine that you said earlier that it's kind of being an entrepreneur, there's always a battle with ego. And, you know, you can think that there's a lot of people, you know, as a co-founder, I mean, you were, you helped to grow this business, you were doing it for a year and a half, there were a lot of sweat, blood and tears. So you can imagine that a lot of people wouldn't have volunteered, you know, wouldn't have proposed that, hey, I want it's a selfless thing. So how did you deal with that? For me, like, I think it was just always like, I'm on this adventure. I look at my life as an adventure. So there's ups and there's downs. And I had just come to the realization that this is just going to be another one of those downs, which is why I think it's really important to fail early because I started failing at things maybe probably around like age 13, 14. Like there was this interesting time I got in trouble at school because I was selling floppy disks with games to my classmates. Those things that like, they really prepare you to just realize that like every time something feels like it's the end of the world, it's probably not. <laughs> so I was not as sentimental about it. It was, just, it was just a simple decision for me to say like, okay, I've done my best. 
I like to focus on things within my control. I've done my best, but there are some things that are beyond my control. So what's the next best alternative? And there's this tendency, I guess, to just stick to a project because you've invested so much in it. That happens a lot in startup entrepreneurship. Sometimes you need to know when, when it's time to, to call it a day. And that's something you just learn with time. Right. So I was very really comfortable at the thing. The only thing I was really worried about was like, huh, I made a lot of noise about this thing. Like, hey, you know, the hype. I really believe the hype. So I made like a lot of noise. But the one person I was really um, scared of disappointing was Mbwana because then he had a lot of skin in this game. Like, you've put money in the company. And he's got like his own LPs that he's got to justify his investment decisions to. It just felt like no matter what the outcome, we had failed our investors. And that, that's a painful burden to carry for anyone. Right, right. And, in yeah. your article, I mean, you, you talk about that moment when you had to get on Skype with him, with Moana. And, yeah. you know, and you write about how you dreaded breaking the news to him because, as you said, and, and it's not just a question that he invested his funds, money, his capital into your company, but also he invested so much of his own time into the company and to you. For sure. But ultimately, it went a lot better than you had predicted. And what did you talk about? Yeah, so it was really unexpected. He was very understanding. And he said that he was glad that I was open about, um, you know, my intentions and my thought process and just understanding when you have two different visions for a company. It's usually easier at that time to terminate a company when there are two different visions, as opposed to like keep um, getting bridge rounds, keep funding the thing when you're not building the same thing. So I think it was like we caught it early. Of course, he was not very, he was not pleased to hear that we're shutting it down, but he was extremely understanding and very graceful about the formalities around it. So it was not as I imagined. And I think like that taught me a good lesson in maintaining good investor relations. Because one thing that I, I really liked, we always had very open and honest conversations, especially when things weren't going as well. So I was able to intervene early and correct our path if we're heading down the wrong way. That's huge. So, you know, it was, it was, yeah, it was just a good ending. It didn't feel tragic and um, he's been supportive of my initiatives going forward. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, that was, that was what were the, a pleasant surprise. Yeah, and what were the two different visions for the company? So I wanted us to focus on this niche of um, lifestyle entertainment venues, like restaurants, bars, clubs, because I felt that there were places where the customers had a lot of money to spend on those services. And just simply improving the experience for them may incentivize them to, to, to spend more. And this was my value proposition to, their, to these businesses. However, um, the rest of the team wanted to build a more general purpose pool that could be fed parameters and then execute the job end-to-end, which I feel was a bit too ambitious for what we had capacity for at the time, but an entirely practical and workable business model. All the same. Okay. You know, you also talked about this in your article that even before you you spoke with Moana, you wanted to reach out to several people to get advice, and only one person responded, and that was Sam, the founder of Africans yeah. Talking. And what did Sam tell you? I mean, what was again? What was this conversation like? Right, so Sam was always like giving us advice and insights into how best to really run the business because then at the time Africa's talking was already a bit mature and he had like just learned a lot through experience about what to do and not what to do. So he was he was a very good mentor even 
of the time that we were building Georgie, we actually used to use Africa's Talking for our SMSs. Our survey SMSs were all powered by Africa's Talking. And yeah, it was just like, hey, you know what? I think he saw firsthand that we had put in effort and I was like, you know, I think you should just be forthcoming and most likely your investors will understand. So yeah, he said it in much more words and in a way that would make assuage my fears mm. and concerns at the time. So I, you know, I bit the bullet and said, okay, let me make this phone call. And I'd already been working with him in the past because I'd helped set up an Africa's talking Malawi, like legally, without any actual work on the ground. So it was like, you know, we had this back and forth and I had these ideas of what I wanted to build on top of Africa's talking in Malawi. So yeah, it was like, I felt hedged in a sense, like, okay, I am quitting, I am leaving. I'm going back home with nothing because like, I had to sell everything. But at least I have a starting point to stay relevant in technology. So that was like the, the majority of the conversation was centered around that and how to make it graceful. Mm. And at the end of the call, Sam made you a job offer. Yeah. Um, so he was saying it like uh, very casually and very playfully, which is I've come to learn is just his character and demeanor. <laughs> And it was like, oh, you know, <laughs> by the way, like, um, when you're done, just help me think through how we set up my life for a few months and then, like, we can work something out. I was like, oh, okay, cool. We'll talk about that. And then, yeah, that was, that was the conversation. So it took me a while to get back to him on that because I was just cleaning up the whole exit from Joachim. But yeah, we had a few more conversations and that it, it occurred to me that if I wanted to build on top of Africa's talking in Malawi, I would first have to build Africa's talking mm-hmm. in Malawi. So that's how I ended up here. But you felt conflicted about kind of joining joining a company in a full-time role. And why, why was that? Yeah, because I've always, I've never been, I'm trying to avoid using the word employed because it doesn't really match what I'm trying to express. So I'd never really been thinking on someone else's terms before. Like my actions being directed by someone was an entirely new concept. So this was something that I expressed to Sam in the beginning. And I said, like, uh, you know, this is a great idea, but like, are you just going to give me full autonomy and approve my budget positions if they make sense? And I expected him to say, like, no, no oversight. And he was like, OK, that sounds effective. Just go figure it out and then tell me how much money you need. And that that's pretty much how we ran the Malawi office for the first year, mm-hmm. <laughs> like Excel sheets and whatever. So like I had a very different picture of what being employed might feel like because I didn't want to lose that personal freedom to experiment. I don't like explaining things to people until I have a good picture of what it is I'm trying to do or what I'm trying to achieve. Because my main problem I've come to learn over time is communication. I have extremely good ideas that I can't articulate in a way that makes sense to the other person. So I usually have to prove myself by doing. That was a very big dilemma for me to say, like, are you going to understand? Are you going to give me the flexibility? But at the end of the day, I think it just boils down to, like, trust. How much do you trust your team members? And how do you make sure that everyone has values what you're trying to build the same way that you do? And that's something that uh, I've gotten from Africa talking. So it still doesn't feel like a job. I mean, I've never gotten a job description or anything like that. So... Yeah, I just, it's very, yeah, it's very nice and I have free time to do whatever I want and no one will question my time spent on X versus Y. So yeah, it turned out to be good. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because, you know, it's like you're working with a company that has more experienced management and like you can really grow with them. And yeah, so it's a, a fantastic opportunity. For sure. It's a lot that I learned. I think one of the biggest things, again, I think it was just an ego thing where... 
I have been founding things for a very long time. If I'm joining something that's already founded, does that make me less of a founder? That was the conversation that was in my head. And I was like, ah, yes, but no, not really. Because if you're trying to build something really, really big, like what we're trying to do at Africa Talking, you just need more people. Like the scale is immense. There's no way I can be in all eight African countries that we run in at once. So you need to like bring other people onto the team. It's just unfortunate that the mechanism that we have designed for that as a society is centered around business law and employment. But I don't think it really makes sense for technology businesses because the things that you worry about are very different and it's the machines that are doing the work. So more flexible structures, I think, really help with solving that problem. And at the end of the day, you come to realize that there's so much more that can be achieved by working together and working on something Taking a smaller position in something doesn't necessarily mean that it has to stay small. Right. So like right now, yeah, right now I'm, I'm managing the biggest responsibilities I've ever managed in my career as a technology entrepreneur, but it's not for the company that I founded. So that's been a very interesting lesson for me. And tell us what you've been up to recently at Africa's Talking. All right. So I recently moved back to Nairobi from Malawi because the Malawi's office has a comfortable degree of product market fit for us. So, yeah, I relocated here to take up a new international expansion role that's being motivated by our recent fundraising. Huh, it's really delightful to think about because $8.6 million do a lot Series A in Africa. Is, <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. So now I'm thinking about like how best can we scale the company to other markets. There's a lot of talent on the team that we're trying to we're trying to distribute more evenly across the board so we can have the sort of impact that we've had in, in Kenya, in Uganda, just making sure we replicate a delightful experience for African software developers. Uh, right now most of my work is centered around like legal setups in new markets that we're looking at. The ones that I can talk about are Ivory Coast, Gambia, Botswana. Those are definitely very close in the pipeline. And there's a few other countries we're looking at as well. We've also learned that we have a lot to offer telecoms operators and regulators. So in order for a company like us to exist in a country, we need to be regulated for application services because we interface so much with, with mobile operators. And some countries don't have frameworks for issuing those licenses. And we're not the only player. So we're now like talking to regulators in some countries and trying to advise them on implementing robust licensing regimens that can accommodate different types of aggregators and players in that mobile telecoms, mobile payment space. And like this has got really amazing, tangible results for people on the ground who are the end beneficiaries of the products that people build on top of our platform. So, you know, I just feel very empowered. I feel like I've been given a lot of opportunity and I'm grateful that all of the failures and all of the struggle, it feels like it's coming up to a point where it's worth it. And now the decisions that I make are can impact a lot more people. Right. And I've never been able to do that on my own. Right. I mean, it seems like you're really heading towards a path of self-actualization and you're doing it with a team. And like you said, you're doing it at scale so you can have such a bigger impact on people. Yeah, it's it's exciting. It's really exciting. It's the most exciting time of my life. Oh, that's (laughs) wonderful to hear. And the the last 10 minutes, Wiza, I want to ask you some more general questions about entrepreneurship in Africa. So if you could go anywhere else in Africa, besides Kenya, where you're based, uh, to learn and improve your business, where would you go and why? 
Lagos, Nigeria. <laughs> like Lagos is it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> this very mature and competitive ecosystem that doesn't tolerate mediocrity. So like if you're making it in Nigeria, it's because you're actually making it. There's no time or room for these like ego-based nuances to come into play. So I feel like you just have you level up faster when you're in Nigeria. And I've noticed that like Nigerian founders are just a lot more purposeful and aggressive about how they render their intent, if I may borrow a phrase from a close friend of mine. Yeah, that's that's where it's at. It just forces you to level mm. up. Right. And there's a quote I love that says, you know, if you go into a room and you're the smartest person in the room, there's a problem. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so Lagos would definitely be it. Okay. And tell us about a recent moment when you learned something about Africa that inspired or intrigued you. So let me go back to a few months ago, a month or two ago, I was in Dar es Salaam talking to some mobile operators trying to set up some legal structures. And I was on a street called Bagamoyo Road, the street in Dar es Salaam, where you have all of the mobile operators, a few tech hubs and a bunch of technology businesses that are more or less congregating in that area. And there's an energy that you feel when you're on that road. Like it's very optimistic. It's very progressive. People are purposefully doing things. And I think like there's this Pan-African wave that's really taken off and it's hard to put in words but I could feel a sense of ownership, like Africans taking responsibility for their own destinies in a very unprecedented way. It felt like people were in control and directing where they wanted to go, which I think is new in the history of the continent. Yes, there have been instances where things like this have happened, but not like this, not in today's world where there's so much global interconnection that African ideas have a level playing field. So we can compete on the global, global scale. That was, it was a feeling and it was delightful. Mm, I love that. I love that anecdote. And if you were an investor and you had a billion dollars, which sector in Africa would you invest in? Education. People can only do to what their capacity allows. So if you want people to do more, you need to build their capacity. And education is the key to doing that. I'm extremely fortunate that my parents could afford to send me to study um, in Kenya. I was actually accepted to several Malawian universities around the time I was meant to start. There was like a lot of political tension and there were strikes in Malawi. So like universities were shut down for over a year. <laughs> and like if I didn't have that opportunity to like go elsewhere and to be exposed, I would have never taken my natural talents and inclinations to a point where other people can, can benefit from the value that I create. So, you know, I'm not any better than the next person, but I had access to information. So just changing the way we teach people things, I think I would invest heavily in education. It would take a long time to make money, but that's where I put it. And what are the last couple of books that left an impression on you? The last one that I read is uh, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. So he's an ex-FBI hostage negotiator, and he's talking about negotiation and the various negotiation scenarios that walk into life on a day-to-day -day basis. And that, that was just really interesting to see someone apply that, those high-stakes techniques onto ordinary things. And then I, started, I learned a lot from that book, and I've been implementing this in my life 
to have outcomes that I want. Okay, can you, but I think can it's you like give this. an example? Yeah. Okay, um, so let me give you a business example. One of the lessons in the book is on a tool called Accusations Audit, where before you go into a conversation with somebody, you have a pretty good idea of what they might accuse you of. If you're trying to like, you know, come to an agreement or something, you know what the other person is afraid of. So you just put that on the table. You address the elephant in the room the moment you walk in. So if you're negotiating, I don't know what example to use. The practical example that I have was that we were negotiating for an interconnection for Africa's talking with Vodacom Tanzania. And one of the things that mobile operators are very sensitive about is giving connections to people who could potentially use it to bypass their internal systems in some way. So I don't want to get into like the technical nitty-gritties of it, but that was the case for us. So I walked into that room and the first thing I said was like, listen, I know that you guys are worried about this interconnect fraud, but this is how we address it. So like the majority of the conversation was not even centered around our value proposition. It was centered around the things that the other person is afraid of. So the moment you do that for someone, they no longer perceive you as someone who is not, not interested in their best outcome. And then the negotiation is no longer me versus you. It's like, okay, I like you. How can we get to a place of, re- of understanding or reconciliation? I'll use that, that word. And this, this applies to everywhere in life when you're trying to communicate an idea across to somebody and maybe they don't share the same view. How do you frame it for them to understand based on your understanding of how they might see you as having skewed or warped incentives to change their opinion on something. Oh, that's brilliant. I love that. Because yeah. it's also so you know, that was the- it's also being empathetic and putting yourself in the other person's shoes and being like, well, what, sure, what are they sure. scared of? What are they risk what are they scared of losing? Yeah. A lot of this is emotional intelligence and empathy, but being purposeful in how you apply it to drive specific outcomes. So for me, like it made me feel like, huh, you know, there's actually a lot more control we have as people over things that we may not necessarily be aware of. And life doesn't have to be so frustrating if you can articulate certain things a certain way. So that was very helpful. Mm. Another book that I'm also reading is Skin in the Game by Nicholas Nassim Talib. And that book has really taught me just a lot about people. And it's changed the way that I accept new information from people. I try to look for people who really do have skin who have experience, who have a stake, who have something to lose. And I've also started applying that to how we do business relationships in Africa. So we're no longer, we're actively, more actively looking for partners who have as much to lose as we do if things go wrong. That just changes the entire dynamic about how business is done. It doesn't take long to get things done when you're very much aligned in terms of what you have to lose. So that just changed my perspective on a few things. Okay, cool. I'm also going to look that book up because I think I could learn. I have something to learn from that. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's not the type of book you'll sit down and digest over like a few hours. Like it's really profound. Um, yeah, I'd strongly recommend right. it. I mean, in, in two, you, you realize at the end of the day that um, in business, it's all about human relationships. So having a better, yes, for having sure. a better understanding of psychology and what drives people is so key. Yeah, for sure. I actually hire for psychology. So someone tells me they have an interest in psychology. Ah, please come through. Uh, um. <laughs> and Wiza, I'd love to close by asking you if you could give one piece of actionable advice to an aspiring African entrepreneur, what would it be? Start now. You're only going to lose time in future. Like just start. I think there are so many people who have ideas in their head and 
because of many reasons, they feel they don't have the permission to actually actualize their idea. So like it's like cultural things. A lot of it is our own fault and how we raise children. We don't raise children to experiment or do things. So I know so many brilliant people who I accuse of sleeping on themselves, like they're sleeping on themselves because they're not taking action. So I would say just get started. You can't really control any outcome, but if you can get started, something will happen. And as long as something happens, you can control that something. But the one way to, to be sure of failure is not to do anything at all. Mm, that's brilliant. Well, Wiza, I, I want to thank you for coming on the show. This was a lot of fun. Well, thank you. Um, very interesting conversations that had me thinking a lot. <laughs> I really like the work you're doing with the podcast. I think um, it's great that there are more platforms for people like me to get their opinions out. So it's very encouraging, and I hope it continues yeah, to grow. Well, thank you, and I hope you can come back at some point and share all of the exciting things you're doing at Africa's Talking. Yeah, in about a year's time, we'll be a lot more to rant about. Okay. Right now, we just want to quietly establish ourselves and slowly take over the world. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you, Wiza. Thank you for having me, Victoria. That's all for this episode of Young African Entrepreneur. But we can use your help in evolving this show through your feedback and suggestions by engaging with us on social media at YAE Podcast. You can also visit yaepodcast.com for show notes, resources, and information on today's episode. That's yaepodcast.com. It's your time, your journey, your Africa, young African entrepreneur.